You're listening to Sermons at FCC Moorhead, a podcast of sermons preached at First Christian Church in Moorhead, Kentucky. A congregation in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ tradition, we are a faith community seeking to live out Christ's call of hospitality and shalom. I'm Reverend Nancy Galler, minister at FCC, and each week we'll post the latest sermon preached from our pulpit. Most weeks you'll hear my voice, but from time to time you'll find guest preachers on this podcast too. Thanks for listening. Oh my. (laughs) Some scripture passages bring me to my knees as a preacher, and I wonder, who am I to preach this text? I'm tempted to sit down in a pew with you in silence and ponder with fear and trembling, what do these words mean? What do they mean for me and for us collectively? Our gospel reading is staggering in its implications. Jesus announces, if any wish to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And to be honest, I'm not sure if my hesitation has to do with not knowing what the text means or more likely I know all too well what the text is saying. And it's my discomfort That comes from the reality of facing the reality of how far away I am from embodying Christ's words. So with that warning, let's take a look at this story together. It's the second part of a dramatic conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. Jesus asks them, what's the word on the street about me? What are folks saying? And the disciples respond, Folks are excited, Jesus. Some say you're John the Baptist, Elijah, or another prophet. And Jesus follows up, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter, dear, precious Peter, blurts out, you're the anointed one of God, the Messiah. And it must have been the right answer because Jesus tells them to keep that to themselves. And that's where our reading begins, with that theologically loaded term, anointed one, Messiah. Anointed ones are the specially chosen, most often military or political figures, sometimes priests, but they are bringers of salvation. They are rescuers and liberators. An anointed one was someone who raises the hopes of the people. People living under occupation, cowered by the unparalleled military might of Rome. And Jesus knows all of this. In response, he paints a very different picture of the future. He says, forget the power and the glory as the anointed one of God in his time, he will suffer greatly. He will be rejected by the religious elites. He will be killed and in three days rise. Their excitement vanishes 
because this is not the future that they signed up for. Up to this point, they had witnessed the kingdom of God being revealed as the sick were healed and those held captive by demons were released. This was the good news they had heard and seen. Nothing at all like this doomsday scenario Jesus now describes. And Peter, who at this point had been batting a thousand with his answers, jumps up to lecture Jesus. The new RSV translation says he took him aside and began to rebuke him. And the Greek word rebuke is the same one used when Jesus heals the demon possessed. He rebukes the demons and the person is freed from their possession. So here Peter rebukes Jesus for saying such crazy things. And Jesus responds, get out of my sight, Satan. You, because you're not thinking in God's terms, but in human terms. And that sounds a bit harsh, doesn't it? I mean, I wonder if this is a creative way for the writer of Mark's gospel to give us a hint as to Jesus' own temptations. Remember last week, Mark gave us no descriptions of Jesus' temptations in the wilderness, only that he was put to the test by Satan. And here, Jesus names Peter as a Satan. So I wonder if these words of Peter hit close to home for Jesus. I mean, in such a time of oppression and suffering, who wouldn't be tempted to bring political release to those in captivity? Would it be such a bad thing to restore the glory of the throne of David, to bring freedom to his people? After all, Peter is just giving voice to stories of hope from the past, to those myths of glory, of national glory, that have sustained generations before him. I suppose he suffers from knows what's best for you-itis. You know the type. Of course, no one in this place <laughs> but you know them, don't you? Folks who hear your situation and then proceed to tell you exactly what you should do to solve your problems. Ugh. Now, I don't recommend that you follow Jesus' example and call those folks the devil. That might be a wee bit extreme. Peter's not the only one who feels unsettled by these dark predictions, though. The text says that Jesus turned and noticed the other disciples, and that's when he reprimands Peter, because it wasn't just Peter who had these visions of grandeur. The other disciples were right there with him, just not quite as vocal about it. And here's where the hard part of our reading comes. Jesus calls the crowds around, not just the disciples, but the crowds, and he begins to teach them with new words, tough words, and he sketches out the way of the cross in his discipleship school on the road as he turns to make his way from the north to the seat of political and religious power in Jerusalem. Those who want to come after me should deny themselves, pick up their cross, follow me. Take up your cross. We wear pretty crosses around our necks, don't we? I have a great selection of crosses. 
But in Jesus' day, in the time when the gospel was written, crosses were not crafted of silver or gold. They were rough, heavy wood, a brutal means of oppression and intimidation. The cross was usually saved by the Romans for the execution of traitors. It was an excruciating death. In fact, the very word excruciating is derived from the Latin excruce, from the cross. And once you finally died from crucifixion, the Romans left your rotting corpse up by the roadside for birds and beasts to feast upon. And as a sign to anyone else who had dreams of rebellion. The cross was an instrument of terror used freely by the Romans. After the uprising of slaves led by Spartacus just 100 years before this time, Rome lined the Appian Way, a major highway out of Rome, with thousands of crosses upon which the rebellious fighters were crucified and left for roadkill. Take up your cross, Jesus says. And the disciples want nothing of it. Back in November, the Kentucky Folk Art Museum had a few pieces of mixed media art by Mark Francis. These pieces are in their permanent collection, and these were on display back in November. Francis had grown up in a violent and abusive home in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, and he often took the brunt of a physically violent father to protect his two sisters. As an adult, Francis struggled with addiction, and he was convicted of murder after an armed robbery went badly, sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. And while in prison, an art teacher inspired Francis to begin to make art. And the pieces in the Folk Art Museum were created while he was in prison. And that art, formed while he was incarcerated, explored his own story, the questions of abuse and bad choices, of chance and consequences, of time and suffering, and the experiences of confinement. And one of his pieces stopped me in my tracks. It was titled, execution. It's a mixed media paper mache because you don't have that many art materials when you're incarcerated. And it features a Christ figure in prison clothes on a cross behind prison bars. And inside the prison cell, the cage, are symbols of modern execution an electric chair, a noose. Containers of three chemicals used in lethal injection are connected to the Christ figure's arms. And on the back wall of the cell is a collage of news clippings, names of inmates executed in Kentucky along with the dates of their deaths. And this piece invites us the viewer, to interrogate our own views of our nation's death penalty and its practices and policies alongside our understanding of the cross 
as an ancient form of public execution. By the end of Mark's story, no one has taken up their cross to follow Jesus. They have all turned tail and run, save for a few women who are left standing at a distance, watching as Jesus suffers and dies. Oh, there are two who took up their crosses. Two criminals, one on his right and one on his left, in a sign of deep irony for the two symbolic places of power next to the anointed one, the chosen one of God, which his own disciples, James and John, had once brazenly asked for, are filled with criminals and not with disciples who are nowhere to be seen. Take up your cross, Jesus says, and we want none of it. We are living in a time when white Christian nationalism is growing in power. Once a fringe movement has emerged in evangelical churches and certain Pentecostal traditions with adherence in one of our major political parties and indeed in Congress. And white Christian nationalism with its unholy mix of religion and political power sees no place for taking up one's cross perceiving themselves to be persecuted, they seek political power to wield it against those whom they deem immoral. Indeed, our new Speaker of the House, in his first speech after being elected Speaker, told the House, quote, I don't believe there are any coincidences in a matter like this. I believe that scripture is very clear that God is the one who raises up those in authority. I believe that God has ordained and allowed each one of us to be brought here for this specific moment and this time. This is my belief. End quote. Now, I grew up in Illinois. <laughs> and in my lifetime, four of Illinois' governors have been convicted of federal corruption charges. So if God is raising these folks up to places in authority, God needs a better vetting process. White Christian nationalists rewrite our country's history to create a false narrative that we are and we have always been a Christian nation. This is untrue. Even as the Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court quotes the Bible alongside Thomas Aquinas and John Calvin to promote a Christian nationalist agenda. At most, the U.S. has at times been a deist nation, believing in some generic God, benevolent but uninvolved, and our leaders have trotted out God language when it fits their purposes for public ceremonies or in defense of our military actions. But you see, the views of white Christian nationalism never seem to embrace these words of Jesus. Take up your cross. 
Those who want to save their life will lose it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? We've never been a Christian nation. We've never been a nation forged in humility, a nation that reflects the image of God that's revealed in the stark vulnerability of Jesus nailed to a cross by the military powers of empire. As Paul proudly wrote, I preach one thing, Christ and him crucified. Not an imperialistic view of Christianity taking on the powers of government, but the embodiment of God's love for the world crucified by those in power. So what does it mean to follow the crucified? To take the name of the one who was humiliated and despised upon a cross, taunted and ridiculed. Some Christians are so easily offended when they see something they think ridicules Christian faith. As if God is so fragile that God needs our protection. When the very symbol of our faith is the insulted Christ. It stands as our most sacred icon, a means of public political execution. Through the years, certain works of art which explored themes and symbols of Christianity in controversial ways, like some of those photographs of crucifix submerged in urine by Serrano. Those were met with protests, you remember, and outcries. I remember passing by picketers as I went into the theater to see the film The Last Temptation of Christ. These works of art cannot be more profane than the very act of crucifixion itself. In fact, I think such intentionally provocative works of art can lead us to a deeper understanding of the radical nature of our own faith to reflect upon the ways in which our choices diminish the power of Christ crucified, the ways in which all of us desperately fall short of being people of the cross. To be a person of the cross is to understand that God in Christ endures humiliation and torture and capital punishment and turns such excruciating ridicule not into retribution, but into a sign of reconciliation, of a new creation, of a realm founded on God's gracious compassion. You see, a God of the cross does not need our defense. The great theologian Jürgen Moltmann wrote, when the crucified Jesus is called the image of the invisible God, the meaning is that this is God and God is like this. Last week, I responded to an email that was trying to set up a meeting and I told the coordinator that I've got this summons to report for jury duty on Tuesday, so I'm not sure that I'll be able to attend a meeting on Wednesday. And then as a side, I said, I probably wouldn't be selected, though, because who wants an ordained minister on the jury anyway? 
And in response, he quickly wrote back, as a criminal defense attorney, you might be exactly the person I want on a jury. Who better to explain the value of forgiveness and empathy? Yes. That's the Christian faith of the cross. Not a triumphalism which seeks to use power to force others to conform to your worldview, but one which is known for its belief in the power of forgiveness and compassion. So, is there good news in this story for us? Peter fails and fails again miserably. He misunderstands time and time again. He confuses his image of glory with the glory of God revealed in the cross, a glory born of humiliation, a glory imbued with forgiveness, a glory that is unlike anything we have ever experienced before. And yet, despite his failure to see the crucified God that Jesus reveals, Peter's not left behind. He's not rejected. He's not demoted to junior disciple. In fact, just a few verses after this, Mark tells the story of Jesus taking Peter, James, and John up on a high mountain for prayer, for reflection. Peter, with all of his faults, remains a part of Jesus' community. And with that second chance and second chance and second chance, Jesus offers Peter a vision beyond his imagining. A glory on that mountain, but it's a glory not of nationalism, but of servanthood. The cover of our bulletin is a painting by Guido Reni of the crucifixion of St. Peter. And it depicts that long-standing church tradition of Peter's refusal to be executed in the same manner as Jesus, choosing instead to be crucified upside down. The good news is that Jesus doesn't demand perfection of us. He only asks for the desire to follow him. Even our imperfect desire to follow in his way. To take up our cross with as much courage as we can muster in this moment, not knowing where the road will lead us. Thomas Merton, in one of his most inspiring prayers, wrote, My Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think that I am following your will does not mean that I actually am doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. This season of Lent invites us not to perfection as disciples of Christ, but to blessed imperfection. To respond to Christ's call, take up your cross as best as we can in this moment. To step out with our best efforts, our best yet imperfect understanding, our best hopes and dreams, 
and to reject the voices which seek to elevate power over compassion and violence over true peacemaking. Knowing, trusting that God blesses our imperfections as we struggle to be people of the cross. Thanks be to God. Thanks for listening. We hope you found inspiration today. To learn more about our congregation, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, be well, be kind, and always be the church where you are.